our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. And now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray briefly together. Father, as Dave began our time together with reminding us of our desire for you that comes through the study of your word as we longingly look into it, we pray that your spirit would incite within us that great passion for you, a passion that would cause us to hunger for your word and would hunger that we would hunger for time spent in your presence, not only privately, but together with your people. As we think of what it means to have a passion for prayer, lead us and guide us and cause us to be greater in our commitment to you and to seeking you than we were even as we began this morning. We pray to the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. You know, people of passion are those who make a difference in this world. I've heard it said that one person with passion is greater than 99 with an interest. And I want to urge you today to consider before the Lord asking Him to make you a person who is passionate for prayer, but ultimately for Him. What is prayer? Well, one little boy uh, who was asked in a Sunday school class one time responded this way. He said, Teacher, I think prayer is a message that is sent to God at night and on weekends when the rates are cheap. <laughs> I think he got that by watching perhaps his parents, a little nighttime prayer, or maybe a thank you for the food we got, let us get to it while it's hot every once in a while. But prayer ultimately is depending on God. It is seeking God. It is loving Him on your knees. It is desiring to be a part of His plan through intimate communion with Him. We often think of prayer as simply asking God or informing God about the things that are on our heart and that we hope He's noticed. But prayer is not that at all. Paul, I would submit to you, is a man who is passionate about prayer. It's been said, if you want your people to bleed about any issue, you have to hemorrhage. And I believe Paul was a man who hemorrhaged when it came to prayer, not only in his private life, but concerning the importance of churches praying together and united in powerful fashion. You know many of the passages. I won't reiterate them all this morning. But as he wrote in the epistles uh, to the Romans, to the Philippians, the Colossians, and Thessalonians, both first and second, as he wrote to Timothy and Philemon and all of those books, and in other cases, you find him uh, referencing his prayer life talking about the fact that he unceasingly would pray, he unceasingly would give himself to God on behalf of the church, and how he would so constantly pour out his life on his knees as he understood that to be so important. You see, prayer is not an addendum to the ministry. Prayer is the ministry. The work of prayer is the work of ministry. It's not something we add on or just in a perfunctory fashion include before we begin doing the real work. The real work is prayer. And Paul understood that, and as he writes, he reminds us of that. As a pastor, I would have to share with you that perhaps one of my greatest burdens is to see local churches that have embraced the priority of prayer in reality. Now, we all give verbal assent to prayer. It is probably the most often talked about and least often practiced discipline of not only our own lives, but certainly the corporate experience. But I submit to you today that prayer is to be at the centerpiece along with the preaching of God's Word in our private and corporate experience. And that, when that passion is there, really is the spark of revival in a congregation. I have to fly back uh, this afternoon. Unfortunately, I, I'm going to miss some of the better speakers here. But uh, we have a prayer summit beginning in our church tonight. We have 200 people who have paid uh, well over $100 apiece to go for three and a half days 
many of them taking vacation time, many of them taking time off work without pay, to go with one agenda for three and a half days. There is no speaker. I'm not teaching. We are simply worshiping God in prayer through the pages of Scripture and then beginning in responsive fashion to let Him speak to our hearts. It sounds radical. I mean, it sounds for Baptists. It sounds almost Pentecostal. But I have found that it really is a, an experience of authentic New Testament Christianity whereby we pray for one another and see God work through the power of prayer. Whereby we seek Him simply because He is worthy to be sought. And if anything is worthy of three and a half days, five days, whatever the days are of our time, it is the presence of Jesus Christ. And to see that experience beginning to happen, I know in our church is greatly encouraging. Paul not only was passionate about it in his own life, but he was passionate to receive that prayer from the churches. And you know many of the uh, obvious uh, uh, Scripture references that refer to that. Ephesians 6, Paul said that this praying is to be the capstone of the spiritual battle. In Colossians 4, he said, devote yourselves to prayer as a church. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, he simply says, brethren, pray for us. In 2 Thessalonians 3.1, he says, pray that the Word of God would be spread and glorified. You see, Paul had learned that while talking to men about God is a great thing, Talking to God about men is the first thing. And he understood that prayer was the work of ministry that paved the way for everything else that would happen, that created in our hearts a conformity to the character and the will of God, and that ministry and life simply could not be conducted without passion in the area of prayer. I don't share with you as one who has graduated from the school of prayer, I suppose I'm probably a freshman myself, I'm not here as one who has arrived, but one who, like you, is a fellow struggler, but one who I hope will challenge you to a greater desire for God. Now, as we look at the text this morning, let me just give you a brief element of context. Paul is writing to the Romans, reflecting on his desire to come and to visit them in ministry. But in the meantime, he was uh, collecting uh, some offerings for the persecuted church in Jerusalem. He imagined himself ultimately going to Spain and stopping in Rome on his way there. And he was urging them, as they anticipated the privilege of his fellowship, to join with him in intense, focused prayer. I want us to see three things this morning from the text as we look at it. Number one, the impetus to this kind of praying, the impetus to passionate prayer. Notice, if you will, he begins in uh, the very first part of verse 30 where he says, I urge you, I urge you. Obviously, uh, the first impetus to prayer is their respect for Paul. If someone in spiritual authority tells us to do something, we ought to respond in obedience. Paul urged them. And I want you to see his admonition in the word urge. It's parakaleo in the Greek. It's the idea, as you know, of coming alongside and encouraging. Paul didn't make this a, a rigid formality. He made it something flowing from his heart that in the warmth of his own example would embrace them toward the priority of prayer. But I want to notice just briefly, if, if you will with me, the audience to whom he was writing. He was writing to the Roman church collectively. And let me just say this. This is one of my... Uh, pet peeves about prayer. I believe in America we have uh, fallen into a culture in which we have, and this is a self-styled word, hyper-privatized prayer. We've come to believe that somehow praying alone is more spiritual than praying together. 
But when you look at the pattern of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, for instance, the church collectively is to give themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to, literally, there's an article there in the Greek, the prayers. It is to be a major facet of our collective gatherings. I don't know about you, but my experience typically in my tradition is that prayer gets a cursory touch, usually in our corporate experience. The idea of gathering together corporately for the focused purpose of prayer is really passe in our culture. But when you really look at the book of Acts, when you really look at the admonitions of of the epistles, you find that the idea is of the church gathered collectively obeying these commands and challenges to prayer. Now, many people will cite Matthew chapter 6. And they'll say, well, hey, wait a minute, Henderson. Uh, didn't Jesus say, don't, don't pray like this, but, but go into your closet and shut your door where God sees you and, and don't do this? Let me put a little context on that. Jesus was comparing two groups. One was the Pharisees who had gone beyond the biblical uh, idea of prayer and they were doing it for the motive of being seen by men. Jesus says, look at that group. Now let me tell you guys, plural, he was addressing them as a group, what you should do when you pray. When you pray, and by the way, in the English, we don't have a plural for you. So if God was a Texan, it would have been in the inspired y'all. Yeah. Now when y'all pray, here's what I want y'all to do. I want you to go behind closed doors into, King James says, a closet. Better translated, inner room. The word tamion is in the New Testament four times. It is always either translated an inner room or a storehouse. It's not the idea of you by yourself in some little uh, phone booth. It is the idea of y'all. Now when y'all pray, close the door. Don't do it out here for a show. Get together alone. And when you pray, pray this way. As he began to give that pattern for prayer. The idea is don't do your praying out in public to make an impression on someone else. But when you pray, go behind closed doors. Again, collect and begin to pray before the God who sees you in secret, who doesn't need you making a public show, but who will find you where you are and will have communion with you in a powerful way. You see, sometimes we think, no, it's more spiritual to be in my closet. And again, that is not any, in my mind, that is not what Jesus had in mind when He gave that command. And so when you look at it, you understand that God is calling us to pray together. Paul is calling them to pray together. And Paul is urging them to gather together in passionate prayer, just as he himself had modeled that for them. And so we see here that their respect for Paul and their understanding of what he had in mind as he wrote motivated them to pray. But secondly... I want you to see, he also urged them to pray out of a regard for Jesus Christ. Notice, if you will, here in the context, or in the verse, verse 30. He says, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how I want you to pray, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that uh, Hebrews 7.25, I believe it is, says that we pray by the intercessory ministry of Jesus, whoever lives to make intercession for the saints. But I believe Paul has more in mind than just that. What is going to motivate them to pray in such a passionate way? It ultimately has to do with Jesus. One translator says it this way, out of a regard for our Lord Jesus Christ, certainly according to Him. I know in my own life, I as a fellow struggler have been trying to continue in a discipline of corporate prayer. I remember when we were in college, we were going to go start a church with a team of six married couples and four single adults, three kids, two semis full of furniture, nine cars as it turned out, trekking by faith across the country to establish a church out of nothing in the Northwest. And we said, oh God, we are in over our head here, Lord, help us. So all we knew to, de- knew to do, and this is kind of bad, you know, if you can't do anything else, pray, right? So we decided we got to pray. So we began to pray uh, 6 to 8 a.m. every weekday morning on our seminary campus. 
not out of some great spiritual uh, uh, theology, just out of desperation. But it was during those times that I began to understand the power of that kind of praying. And, and in my own life, it seems that several days a week I've been committed to these early morning prayer meetings. I just can't kick the habit. And many times, I don't feel like going. We used to have an early morning prayer meeting at 6 o'clock on Monday. Now that is suicide for a preacher, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but after preaching two or three times on Sunday mornings, being up long hours, giving myself, the last thing I feel like doing is getting up and going to 6 o'clock prayer meeting. But I began to realize the motive is not that I feel like it. The motive is not how many others are going to be there. The motive is not that I'm going to get some spiritual buzz when I go. The motive is not that it's raining or it's sunny. The motive is that Jesus Christ is worthy. And that never changes. Jesus Christ is worthy to be sought. Jesus Christ is worthy to receive my praise. Jesus Christ is worthy to receive my affection. And I tell you, gang, the only enduring motive for prayer is not guilt. It's not that Paul is urging you to do it. It's not that Henderson's excited about it. It's that Jesus Christ is worthy to be sought. And when that becomes the motive, we begin to understand what it means to pray with passion. Because that never changes. He's worthy today, He'll be worthy tomorrow, He'll be worthy in your crisis, and He'll be worthy when everything's going fine. But you will have a consistent motive. And Paul says, I want you to pray by our Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, he says also, or third really, not only our respect for Paul and our regard for Christ, but our resource of the Spirit. Notice in verse 30, he says, and by the love of the Spirit. Now again, we know we can't pray, Romans 8.28, except the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. But I think what Paul is referring to here is what Romans says, that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit of God. Let me tell you something. Those Romans did not love Paul enough to do what he was asking them to do. And I'll tell you this, as much as I uh, love you and love the Master's College and love John, there's not enough love in me to intercede in the way that Paul's about to urge them to do it. Paul says, gang, you need something supernatural. You need something beyond yourself. And I want you to pray with passion, not only by our Lord Jesus Christ, but by the love that the Holy Spirit is going to put in your heart in order to intercede like this for me. You see, it is the Spirit of God who produces the fruit of what? Of love. And I want you to know that as I go to prayer in my own life, and I trust for you as well, I have to often tell God, God, I don't feel like praying. God, I don't want to pray. God, I'm not in the mood. God, ultimately there's something in me that's so self-reliant, I don't feel like I need you right now. And prayerlessness, by the way, is ultimately our declaration of independence from God. But I say, Lord, I know that Jesus is worthy. And I know that there's an amazing power, an amazing force, an amazing person, the very Holy Spirit of God who wants to pray in and through me and to put in me His love to pour myself out before Your throne on behalf of the ministry, to pour myself out on behalf of the needs of people, to give myself intensely on behalf of the kingdom of God. And it's going to have to be Your Holy Spirit who fills me and prays like that through me because only then... Can I pray with passion? Amen. So Paul doesn't say, hey gang, I just want you to be tough-minded. I want you to gut it out. I want you to stay on your knees till they get calluses because you're that kind of person. You're determined, choleric temperaments. No. He says, you can't do it. But I tell you what, if you listen to what I say, and you'll do it because of Christ, and you'll do it by the Holy Spirit, you will experience an amazing ability in your life to pray like you have never prayed before. And I can tell you, friends, it works. And that's how real biblical prayer happens. And so here's the impetus to prayer that Paul gives to them. Now secondly, I want you to see the intensity of this prayer. Notice again in verse 30. 
Two, here's what he wants them to do. Two, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now that word strive together with, soon agonizomai, is a very interesting word. Soon obviously means together or together with. And agonizomai, you don't need any explanation of that. That sounds enough like our English word to get the message. Paul is saying, I want you to agonize in prayer with me. I want you to feel such agony in your soul. And I want your praying, as it were, to be so intense that this is the only way to describe it. Now, to be honest with you, most of us have never really prayed like that except when we're in crisis. You know, the old help Lord message. Uh, We feel a little agony then. Paul's saying, no, I don't want you to pray out of crisis. I want you to pray out of conviction. And the kind of praying I want you to express is agonizing prayer. It's the same root word that's used in John 18.36 for the idea of fighting. In 1 Corinthians 9.25 for the idea of striving toward a crown. The same word that's used in Timothy for contending or even suffering reproach because of your commitment. You see, there's a popular theology out there and a well-known writer who I remember one time reading in one of his books when he was referring to men like Ian Bounds and Hudson Taylor and Charles Spurgeon and A.W. Tozer, all of whom embrace this kind of prayer. But in our culture, this writer said, you can hardly find one of them who was satisfied with his prayer life. They labored in prayer, they believed in prayer, they taught and preached prayer. But why the dissatisfaction? Why the guilt, he writes? I'm convinced that for centuries Christians have forced prayer into a role it was never designed to play. He says, I would suggest we have made it difficult, hard, and even painful. You don't find any of that in the Scriptures. And I would say I disagree. I believe prayer is hard work. Now the Spirit of God puts within us the energy, the desire, the ability, but ultimately prayer is hard work. Tell that to Jesus who in the garden was sweating as of drops of blood because of the agony of his soul as he prayed. Tell that to Jesus as all night long in prayer He poured out His heart to God prior to selecting the disciples. Tell that to Christ who early in the morning, rising up a great while before the day, departed into a solitary place and there He prayed. You see, Jesus is the ultimate example. Is prayer hard and long? Sometimes it is. The Bible urges us in numerous places to pray in this way, to pour ourselves out. But the ultimate example is Jesus Christ. You see the disciples as they waited for Pentecost praying. And it's not just, it's not just the matter of, of quantity, but it's the quality of focus. It's the passion of the heart before the, the uh, throne of God. And so he is telling them, I want you to pray. Ephesians 6 says prayer is warfare. Colossians 2 calls it a great conflict. Isaiah 64 says it is arousing yourself to take hold of God. Moses for 40 days twice prayed in the wilderness, as did our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, I believe, just as uh, Paul refers in Colossians 4.2 to the one who agonized in prayer on behalf of the church, that Paul is saying this, hey, you don't have to be a super Christian. You don't have to be a theologian. If you're a saint of God, I want you to learn to pray this way. I want you to learn to agonize in prayer. Just as I am doing it, I want you to join with me in this agonizing prayer. And so he talks about the intensity. But lastly, I want you to see the intercession to which he calls them. And this is found in verses 31 through uh, 31 and 32. And there are three things he tells them to pray about. You say, hey, Daniel, one of my New Year's resolutions, I'm going to start praying more. Well, here's three good prayer targets as you begin to pray for uh, your leaders and as you begin to pray for the work of ministry that Paul gives to them. Notice in verse 31, he says that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. The first intercession that he reminds them of is the intercession of prayers for protection. Prayers for protection. 
And uh, he mentions to them that he needs deliverance from those who are disobedient in Judea. Now you say, what does that mean? Well, he's uh, again referring to his journey. He knows he's trying to make his way to Jerusalem, then to Rome, then to Spain. And he knew that there were unbelieving Jews who couldn't stand the guy. Many times we've already read in Acts of how they tried to kill him. In Acts chapter 9 in Jerusalem they tried to kill him. In Acts 20 he referred to the fact that he was bound in spirit knowing that chains awaited him. And so he said, I need the sovereign protection of God in my life. And I want you to pray for me. I remember sitting with a man in San Jose whom I was discipling. He told me the story of his very best friend, a Christian friend. You've heard stories like this. But he was coming into the San Jose International Airport sitting next to a fellow who had not been eating the entire flight. And he finally turned to him just before landing and asked him, uh, why didn't you eat as we were flying? And the guy said, well, I'm fasting. He said, well, why are you fasting? Are you a Christian? He says, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm a, a member of the Church of Satan in San Jose. And he says, on every Tuesday, all the Satanists of the Bay Area fast and pray for the downfall of the marriages of Christian leaders in the Bay Area. Now, friends, we need protection. It may not be the Jews who are after us, but it's still the same arch enemy who is out to destroy Christian leaders, Christian young people, future pastors, and we need that kind of prayer. But not only that, as we pray, we get the heart of God. I remember a letter that came into John's office when I was working here a number of years back from a young man, a pastor in Indiana, who told the story of how a man in his church who was not saved had come into the congregation and had paid a lady a significant sum of money, I don't remember this, John, to seduce him as a young pastor. And that this man had been out to seduce the pastor's wife. Until one time, with a touch from God, the man became a Christian. And he told the pastor of his scheme, and the pastor wrote to John telling about that story. My friends, there's a battle going on out there, and we cannot afford to sit back on our laurels just assuming it's all going to work out. God wants us to enter into the spiritual battle, to be a part of the solution, and to pray prayers of protection for God to deliver Christian leaders and fellow believers from the wiles and the fiery darts of the enemy. Secondly, he says, I want you to pray in a second dimension, and that is prayers for prosperity. Notice what he says, verse 31. And I want you also to pray that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. He says, I want you to pray that God will prosper my ministry. Now, what does that mean? Uh, that uh, God will enable me in order to uh, 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 give an acceptable gift to the saints in Jerusalem. Well, again, the bottom line was this. He was collecting money from non-Jews, from the Gentiles. Uh, you've read about that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He was going to take it to the Jews in Jerusalem. There was some historical bad blood there. And he knew that they may question his motive. He knew that they may reject it because of what it came, where it came from, perhaps, in, in their own fleshly bias. And he says, I want you to pray that the Jews in Jerusalem will understand that my motives are pure, my desires are high, and, and my heart is for them. And that when I come, they will accept the ministry. Again, if the devil can't destroy you by... Uh, bringing his own attacks against your life, he'll sometimes destroy you from within by creating a non-acceptance, a division, a discord, a discontent within the church of Jesus Christ whereby we question one another's motives, whereby we reject one another, whereby we fail to lovingly accept each other. And Paul was saying, I'm just asking you to pray that my ministry will be prosperous and that God will enable me within the church to have blessing. Then there's a third way in which he prayed, and uh, we notice it there in verse 32. So that, 
so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Not only prayers of protection, not only prayers of prosperity, but now he says, I want you to pray for prayers of provision, personal provision. He shares the desire of his soul after a grueling ministry stint, after traveling and preaching and raising money and going through the the throes of visiting Jerusalem. He says, I want you to pray that God will provide for me so that when I get to Rome, I can find refreshing rest in your company. You know, one of the greatest encouragements we have when we get together in contexts like this is uh, sharing with one another our own needs. The fact that uh, we get lonely. The fact that sometimes uh, we have struggles and problems and battles in our own life and, and sometimes we need the refreshment. And I'm so grateful, John, for the opportunity to be here and receive that from you and from these men because the battle is intense out there. And Paul was being very transparent as he said, I want you to pray that when I get there, my spirit will be refreshed because the ministry's tough. And he said, pray that I will be able to come to you, that I'll make my destination and find refreshing rest in your company. That was the specific intercession that Paul gave to them. Protection, prosperity, and provision. But notice the submissive dimension of that as he goes on into verse 32. He says, refreshing rest in your company, but by the will of God. You see, prayer is not ultimately telling God what we want. He already knows all that. He knows your heart before you verbalize anything. He is saying, I want you to pray that by the will of God, it will all work out. In all of this specific praying, ultimately, I just want you to say, Lord, thy will be done, right? And so he reminds them of the need to submissively give their hearts to God. Now, let me just give you a little context of what happened. Some of you know this. The book of Acts, chapter 21, verse 17 through 28, 16, tells about his journey. His journey from collecting these monies, going to Jerusalem, and then going on to Rome. What happened? Well, he was received by the church. The church welcomed his gift there in Jerusalem. But he was seized by the Jews. There were many trials, many threatenings, uh, shipwrecks, and yet... God protected him because you remember that he was guarded by the Roman guard itself for two years. And so God answered that prayer in a different way, but he answered it. And then when he got to Rome, how did God uh, provide for him? He wasn't there sitting in church service. He was in a jail cell. But you know what it says in 2 Timothy? There was a man named Onesiphorus who came and often, as he says in 2 Timothy, refreshed my soul. And so it wasn't all uh, flowers and petunias. I mean, this was a rough, rocky road for Paul. He did get to Rome. He did find the refreshing rest. He was protected in kind of a different way. And his gift was accepted. And so the prayers of the saints had great impact. But better yet, God had a plan that was above, above and beyond anything Paul could have imagined. And there's a verse in Philippians, a couple of them. Philippians 1, 12 through 14. In fact, I think we've got the verses. In fact, would you read that with me? And I want us to think about what happened after the fact as the church entered into passionate praying. Let's read that aloud together from the screen. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Praise God. You see, they wonder, Paul, we've been agonizing for you in prayer. We've been gathering together on our knees, asking God to protect, to provide, to prosper. What happened? Well, it didn't go according to plan, my plan. 
but it went according to God's plan. And I wound up right where I was supposed to be. It didn't make sense when I got there. But now the influence of the gospel has come from the very palace itself. As some of the guards and others in that context have come to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. My friends, don't you want to live with the assurance of knowing that when God is up to something that may surprise us, that may sometimes be difficult, that may sometimes be challenging, but the results and the spread of the gospel and the advancement of His kingdom, that you have been a part of it because you have prayed with passion. What a great reward to see God work because saints learned how to pray agonizing prayer. I like the way Spurgeon said it. No man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. You know, here at Master's College, my desire, my hope, my prayer for you would be that some of you would catch a fresh vision about what the Scriptures mean when they urge us to devote ourselves to prayer. What Jesus meant when He says, go into your inner room and when you have gathered together and the all-seeing eye of God is there, pray this way. Pray, pray prayers of worship and praise and honor and glory to God. And after you spent that time in worship of Him, surrender to His kingdom and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And by then, your whole prayer list has been revolutionized. And now you begin to pray for God's provision in your life and in ministry and His protection from the temptations. And you'll be able to rise from that place and say truly to Him that to thine be the glory and the honor and the blessing forever, knowing that His kingdom is being advanced as you are on your knees. What a vision. What an opportunity. And if ever the church of Jesus Christ, if ever individual Christians, if ever the work of missions around the world has needed that kind of praying, it is now. I close with a story, one of my favorites, about David Brainerd. Many of you know that he was one of the greatest missionaries in the early days of our country. Throughout his lifetime, his body was racked with a painful disease of tuberculosis, resulting in his premature death at only the age of 29. Yet he earnestly sought to serve the Lord. Often as he would travel, he would cough up his own blood and the pain of, of his disease would cause him to fall off the saddle, not in Kmart fashion, but, but in real fashion because of the racking agony he went through because of his passion for the gospel. David Brainerd one time heard about an Indian savage tribe in northern Pennsylvania where the gospel had not yet gone. Two missionaries had already lost their lives in an attempt to get the good news to this tribe with a passion in his heart to seek God and to let others know God and to preach the good news of Christ, rode all night to find this tribe. By daybreak, as he peered through the trees, he saw the shadowy figures of the teepees with smoke pouring forth from them. And he decided to stop in a clearing and pray. To pray for the glory of God, to pray for his own heart, his own delivery, to pray for that tribe. Unbeknown to Brainerd, one of the Indian warriors spotted him praying out in that clearing that morning. And so he brought the rest of the Indians to encircle him around that area. And they were prepared to torture and kill the white man as soon as he finished praying. But they waited all morning as Brainerd prayed on, without, without ever once lifting his head. They waited all afternoon and still the prayer warrior continued to pour out his heart in agonizing prayer to God. And then as evening approached and the sun began to set, the Indians saw a rattlesnake coming out of a nearby nest. They were gleeful with the thought that Brainerd had chosen to pray right next to a rattlesnake's nest. And they were imagining the wonder of watching this man die, the agonizing death of rattlesnake poisoning. 
So the Indians watched as the serpent came within feet of the man of God and it would stop, it would lift its head, it would look at the strange figure on its knees, the snake would pull back and poise his head and yet continue to circle, never once striking out. Then the snake returned to its nest in the bush. The watching Indians were awestruck. They knew that they had just witnessed the miracle and immediately they threw down their weapons, ran out to Brainerd and begged him to tell them of this miracle working God. The account tells us that Brainerd rose from his knees to lead the entire Indian tribe to Jesus Christ. My friends, what could happen if out of a passionate love for Jesus and out of a complete yieldedness to the power of the love of the Holy Spirit, we began to pray agonizing prayer not only individually, but collectively, agreeing together concerning the work of Christ in our lives and in in this world and in this college and in this city. Paul says, as you pray for protection, as you pray for prosperity, as you pray for that provision that is so necessary in the work of the ministry by the will of God, wait and see. For God says, call unto me and I will show you great and mighty things that you know not of. May the Master's College be a place of prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, this morning we thank You for the privilege. The privilege of a relationship with You through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord in my own heart, and I'm sure representing the hearts of many here, I would confess to You, Father, that so many times I have lived believing that I really didn't need You in order to live the Christian life. How many times I've gotten up and gone throughout my day, I've neglected the opportunities not only of meeting with You, but of praying together with other believers to express that united corporate experience of the glory of Christ. But in my heart of hearts, believed I could just somehow do it without You. And yet, Lord, You say, apart from Me, You can do nothing. Father, I ask that You would instill within us a fresh vision, a fresh desire, not like the Pharisees to be seen of men, but to gather together in the quiet places of this campus, in the private moments of our individual lives, confessing to You, Lord, that we don't know how to pray, but that You have given to us the Holy Spirit of God who will cultivate in us such a love for You and a love for others, and You will through us give us the ability to pray. God, it is You who works in us both to will and to do of Your good pleasure. And Lord, we ask for an ongoing reality rising from this campus in which like a sweet aroma of incense, prayers are being offered to God. And Lord, may we look back and say that what has happened in our lives, what has happened on this campus, has not happened because we were clever, because we were, we were able, because we were talented, because we were strategic, but that what has happened on this campus has happened simply because we have prayed and that God has done what only God can do through those who have learned to pray with passion. And may we give you the glory, the honor, and the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Dave. Amen. Thank you.